0: From my perspective, here I am sitting in prep school with, you know, you we went to school with pretty interesting people of fairly high rank, and they said you had to give all that up. And I would give up my opportunity to, to move forward, and I thought they were crazy. Yeah. And to make it even more interesting is that I arrived in Trinidad, and they instead of sending me to prep school in America. They said, no, it's good for you to go to the um, local high school in in Wilson, North Carolina. Right. And we arrived in Wilson that year on the day of integration.
1: From Fiore Communications, it's how I got here. A show of inspiring stories from Tallahassee area leaders, business owners, and neighbors. All the challenges, opportunities, inspirations, the twists and turns of life that led them to where they are today. Everyone has a story worth telling, and I am really grateful that we get to bring a few of them to you. I truly have been changed by my conversations with these amazing people, and I'm confident you will be too. I'm Dave Fiore and in this episode, I speak with community leader, business consultant, and innovator, Christopher Campbell. Raised in Trinidad, Christopher was educated in an English prep school before the family moved to the United States when he was 16. He says the transition to a new country and culture was made a little easier by having a British accent and a Beatles haircut, both very popular in 1966. A successful career in telecommunications and consulting, allowed Christopher to pursue his passion to impact the world around him. He was an award-winning leader with the Boy Scouts, served on various boards, and was a founder of St. Peter's Anglican Cathedral and is a longtime Rotarian. He also put his love for sports to good use. He and his wife, Tina, worked together, managing marketing and sponsorships for a NASCAR team and helped convince the British Olympic team to train in Tallahassee for the 1996 Games in Atlanta. Christopher is probably best known as the founder of the Tallahassee Quarterback Club Foundation, which created the Belitnikoff Award, honoring the best receiver in college football and provides scholarships to local players. He remains focused on finding ways to give back to the community and serve others. We begin by talking about his early years.
0: Right. I was in early school in Trinidad. I was 10 years old. What happens with the colonial families is that they send their children back to prep school in England, which I did. I went when I was 10 years old. But before that, I lived, um, you know, we had uh, an estate and uh, we had a good life, and I spent a lot of time in the, in, the, um, in the jungle. I mean, it just, that's the way life was. And I had my own donkey and I <laughs> went whatever I wanted to do. And we, you know, we were primarily business was um, flowers. We grew flowers in mass, and we shipped them out by the container to the United States and to England. So I'm the original flower child. You know? Wow! So when you say you had a donkey and you could do anything you wanted in the jungle, what kind of things would you do? Well, you, you its very interesting. You have this wonderful valley that has all kinds of things in it, and uh, you can take off in the morning and, and um, go off and I can go play with the guppies or I can go pick fruit or go up the mountain, but that's the, the estate. We lived obviously downtown um, outside of Port of Spain, which is, the, which is the capital of Trinidad. Okay,
1: so going to prep school back in England was a pretty big change in your lifestyle,
0: right? Absolutely, I mean, it's just, you know, you're going from a very um, agricultural life that was my father it was an agronomist, which is a fancy name for a farmer. And uh, so I lived in that world. And then you go to prep school, which is um, pretty formal and everything you read about in the, in the books or the movies. And um, I started off with, a, if you saw the Chiquita banana commercial, that's the way I spoke. Obviously, in, uh, <laughs> in prep school, that doesn't cut it. So you have to learn the Queen's English and we did and um so but that's a very interesting life the um prep school life you know you i loved it it was a great life you know, i was very competitive in sports and so forth but i mean the kind of thing you live with in the winter they don't think too much of heat so you lived in dorms and the windows were open no matter what the temperature was so it's right yeah. so the only thing i have to relate to that
1: is watching the crown and where prince philip went have that's you, a, that's is that exactly the kind of thing?
0: yes exactly right he went to gordonston okay and I went to Millfield, the comparable, and um, yeah, you have to know how to get around. I mean, you have to be a self-sufficient and tough, and you know. So, it's, yeah. it's I loved it. I lived it, and it was. Um, he didn't do so well. No, he didn't enjoy <laughs> it as much, at least from the show.
1: Yeah. Um, so, did you get to go home on holidays or summers or anything?
0: You know, that's a great question. The way it works with a in a colonial system like that is. First of all, in those days, it took two, year, two days to fly from England to Trinidad, wow. okay? And what happened, I had two separate years that I didn't go back to Trinidad. I didn't see my family. And the way that is that colonial families will buy a beautiful estate, and then they will um, solicit for people like myself and my sister, and you'd go stay with them during the holidays. So in Easter for a month, you'd go, or in the summer for three, two and a half months, you'd go live with this family.
1: Yeah, it seems so foreign that whole concept. But I guess if that's, you know, that's the way you're raised, those are your expectations. It's just the next step of your life, right?
0: Right, and um, you know, you you begin to live into it. You begin to em- embrace that whole thing of being a part of a, a prep school and being playing sports for them. And I was very fortunate. I was in the prep school system. The officers, the student officer, uh, uh, um, called prefects, and um, I would had made my way up, and I was an actually in line to be head boy at, at that school, which is a big deal. Yeah. And then when my parents said no, they had already left Trinidad, what had happened was my, um, my father, as I said, was an agronomist. He was a world authority on tropical crops, and they were pioneers in mm. the sense that here that she had lived all her life in Trinidad for multi-generations and they were gonna give all that up to come to America and so I'm ever blessed for them that they made such a bold decision to come to the United States right then from my perspective here I am sitting in prep school with you know you went to school with pretty interesting people of fairly high rank and they said you had to give all that up and I would give up my opportunity to to move forward and I thought they were crazy. Mm-hmm. And to make it even more interesting mm-hmm. is that I arrived in Trinidad, and they, instead of sending me to prep school in America, they said, no, it's good for you to go to the um, local high school in, in Wilson, North Carolina. Right. And we arrived in Wilson that year on the day of integration. I read that, <laughs> that
1: your first day there was the first day of integration
0: in the schools correct and they'd integrated three high schools together
1: wow so how did that go
0: well it was dramatically different i mean the people that um i was at school in england very different it was the very best thing that ever happened to me it was a great experience Uh, a little tough culturally it was a dramatic change but um i had you know you learn to get on with all walks of life People that you had never associated with, but now it changed, and it was the very best thing I could do. It was also from an academic point of view. Schools in England, whenever you gave, had a question or a quiz or essay, everything was an essay. Mm. So I had to learn how to take um, like multiple choice, multiple choice, and fill in the blank. Had no. So that's idea. an American thing. The multiple right. choice. Yeah, you don't have that. I think it's beginning to be used more right. and more through the world. But in that time, it was a dramatic difference. Right. Yeah. So I'm interested how you adjusted and how you were received
1: being different because coming in in that situation, that's tough for the kids in those communities to figure out how they're going to live together and you know go to school together and get along and all that. But you have to get used to Americans overall because you're coming from a completely different situation. And now you're, you've been put right in the middle of the racial tensions of of, of the integration. So- how did how did you deal with all that at at one time?
0: Well, it was very interesting. It um, you know I had an advantage. Um, obviously, I was English and it was very attractive. I had a beetle haircut. The Beatles oh, were yeah. very <laughs> very um, popular. And so what so year was this? This was nineteen uh, sixty six. Okay, so right yeah, right after the Beatles arrived. Yes, and yeah. so um, I was able to garnish a lot of. Uh, interest because of being a Beatle type, you know, and speaking like them and talking like them. And, right. and so the ladies liked that a lot. And so it was kind of <laughs> nice. And I was, I filled, fit in quite well. I was uh, voted to the um, uh, court at high school. Oh, and nice. we played, that's really where my right. love of American football started. We had, by amalgamating three high schools, we had an incredible football team, hmm. high school football team. We won the state championship. Uh, in in North Carolina, three years in a row. Wow! And they actually wrote a book about us, and which was kind of neat. And that's so, and that's where I really enjoyed getting to know, and that would lead to some other things that happened in my life. But, wow! Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah we're, Remember the Titans is one of my favorite movies, right. and that's a similar time, very period same in situation. environment
0: that yeah. we were in. Suddenly, you had the two different coaches, the different players. But it was amazing how um, the coach at the time was very good at at managing that, much Mm -hmm. like the coach in the Titans. Right. And, um, you know, you had to do that because you had very good players. We had many of the players that played on those teams went on to the pros. Mm -hmm. Wow. So I have to ask, did it bother you at all that you thought or that the people
1: in North Carolina thought you sounded like you were from Liverpool?
0: Well I I don't think they knew the difference but it uh, no I did not sound like I was no, from I, Liverpool because <laughs> that, that would be that would be beneath you to sound like you were from Liverpool right <laughs> That's right Yeah yeah I figured Yeah that. obviously class structure in England is very different and very right. uh, very in place <laughs> <laughs> After high school
1: you went to the University of North Carolina at
0: Chapel Hill. At Chapel Hill, Correct. right. Yes, I, I was actually, was offered a position at NC State as well, and mm-hmm. I thought I'd do architecture there, but all my friends were going to Chapel Hill, so I ended up at Chapel Hill.
1: And how far away is Wilson from Chapel Hill?
0: It's about 45 minutes okay. an hour. Um, the interesting thing there, though, if you remember back in 1969, that was the anti-war movement. So mm-hmm. we had all the um, National Guard surrounded UNC because of what the unrest, and in my freshman year my first semester i didn't take any finals so all my classes if you could get through one a test um our exam that was your grade because mm. what would happen is people would call in bomb threats and you wouldn't take any exams and people would just you know they'd vacate the buildings and nothing would happen so it was a very different world i mean it was the time of kent state and all the right, anti-war yeah. movement against vietnam and um And then it sort of began to quiet down in the spring. And then everything began to change. And by our junior year, life was very different. It was back to normal.
1: So still being fairly new to the country, what were your thoughts of watching and being in the middle of this revolutionary time in American history?
0: Well, it was a very exciting time. I mean, you saw a lot of different things going on. Um, You had to, you know, there's, there's a fundamental difference between American culture and, and British culture. In England, you're honorable until you dishonor yourself. In other words, you're, you you assumed as to be honorable. Assuming to be honorable. Right. Whereas in America, it's what have you done for me today? Mm-hmm. You know, it's a different – It's a, and I embraced that. That was that very competitive spirit. You know, um, though I was fortunate to be in the right socioeconomic group in England, but I love the competitiveness of, uh, um, of the British uh, – the American culture. Right and I I really enjoyed it, and um, I was fortunate to go to a good school at the University of North Carolina, and um, uh, that's when I began to come to terms with much of who I was and, um, you know, the difference, and began to uh, enjoy and and really take control of my own life and uh, uh, did well. Well, good. What did you do after you graduated? I was very fortunate. Um, I was... uh, because I did have an international background. I got a job um, with Corning Glass International, and I was responsible for Middle East, Africa, and India sales. And that's a very different world. I mean, selling uh, American products into um, the Middle East and Africa and so Mm -hmm. forth. And then I left Corning and I joined Ingersoll Rand, heavy equipment manufacturer. And that's when I did mechanical engineering, and then the awareness came to me that the world of mechanical engineering was over, and so I actually made the conscious decision to to go to electronic engineering, um, and joined AT and T, and went through all their training. They would we were very fortunate in those days. AT and T was becoming a company; it has been, you know, deregulation had started, and um, they put you through significant training and pretty rigorous training for three years. It's like two master's degrees. Wow. And uh, you have to pass all your tests within 10%. And it's when you're constantly under that pressure, um, you're watching people around you that just falling away. I mean, it was just a very competitive environment. So, right. So I finished up. I was fortunate to be top of my class, and I enjoyed it and learning all about those that new technology. And that's where my love of technology came from.
1: Right. And specifically in telecommunications at that Correct. point,
0: yes, and data processing. You had to also the, in the early years of, of programming. We actually ended up our last classes were programming in C language at MIT. So um, I learned from that experience that that's not what I wanted to do in life. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> but you were with AT and T,
1: and then um, was it Earthlink after that yes. for for a good number of years
0: altogether? Uh, right? Yes, I. Um, Actually, Earthlink was in uh, uh, the, the today's world of a company called uh, Deltacom. Okay, right. And I helped build that company. I was brought in to help build that company as a startup, and that was very exciting. And we actually won the state contract for telecommunications from at and That was my claim to fame there and was very successful with Deltacom. And then you left that
1: industry to um, be CEO and managing partner of a capital venture firm.
0: Right. correct it was um, something that I'd always thought I'd wanted to do um, and I was involved with that for a time and um, though we did some startups it's a very different world then I decided uh, to get back into telecommunications and I was very fortunate to be asked to head up the um, state of Florida um, division of communications part of D- Department of Management Services, right which in In essence, you're running the state of Florida Telephone Company. Right. Because you do all the data processing, the telecommunications, first responders, um, the emergency management services for all city, county, government throughout the entire state. Wow. All
1: right. I want to take a break for a minute from the resume and talk about the Boy Scouts. Okay. As this is going on kind of at the same time, right? It's your involvement with that organization so it looks like you dedicated a large part of your adult life to the program and have served in a variety of capacities and leadership roles why are the boy scouts so important to you and why have you um committed so much of your time to serving that organization
0: in england when i was there they have a program called the duke of edinburgh award and it's just sort of a, a on the same line obviously the boy scouts was started by baden powell in london and um but I did the Duke of Edinburgh. It's more of a um, high-end sort of outdoor um, achievement. You have to do a lot of camping and so forth. And mm-hmm. I had gone through that program. And then when I, I did do Boy Scouts in Trinidad, but Cub Scouts, but I um, I didn't get that far. But when I came here, and I now had two sons, I wanted them and 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 my daughter, and um, I wanted to have them be a part of it. So I became very interested in the Boy Scouts, very active in it. I was very fortunate to uh, be a part of uh, Troop 109 with Tim Hunt, and we had a a tremendous opportunity to help people, and I thoroughly enjoyed raising children. I mean, I've raised a lot of children in my life, Mm a lot of boys, and um, we took 61 boys to Eagle, which is pretty significant. And then I went on to be um, president of the Suwannee River Area Council. Mm -hmm. At the time, it was in significant debt, and it wasn't. Needed a little tender, loving care. And over six years, I built that back up so that uh, we got a new building. We got on Thomasville Road. We uh, brought a lot of facilities to be built at Camp Walwood. And um, we um, really changed the trajectory of the program to where we were very successful and a profitable organization. Hmm.
1: What do you take most from all those years of working with with boys and taking them through a a program like that?
0: Well, the wonderful thing about raising children is if you will treat them with respect and be firm with them and and love them and care for them, they will walk through the fire for you. Mm -hmm. And it was very interesting over the years. That's the way I operated. If your child stepped into my firing, and in other words, come camping. uh, they're by they live by my rules, and it was very interesting to watch how parents would say to me, "Well, how come our son will do what you say?" and I said, "Well, first of all you've got to learn to love them and care for them, and they've got to know you're being honest to them mm-hmm. and so yes, and you know it's wonderful i, I mean, even today I have uh, kids doing and even in high school they would drive up in their truck and roll the window down and say, Mr. Campbell, I want you to meet my girlfriend. So, (laughs) you know, you built that relationship and watching kids grow and learn. And then I went on to do the same thing for adult scouting. Um, Baden-Powell in 1919 started a program uh, which is an eagle project, an eagle equivalent for adults. It's called Wood Badge. And I began teaching uh, that course I took it and then t- taught it and became the, the uh, course director.
1: both my sons-in-law are Eagle Scouts wonderful congratulations so, yeah so I am not needed for tying knots or starting fires or <laughs> anything like that They've That's got great. all that
0: covered yeah yeah and I was very fortunate because of what I did I did get the um, the Silver Beaver award which is the highest award locally and then the silver antelope which is the highest award volunteers get within the Boy wow. Scouts. So, and then there's another one, it's called Garden Country, Your Service to Church, which was, my faith has been a very critical part of my life, and uh, and, uh, I was very honored to get the the, uh, St. George Award for service to youth within my church. Okay. Well, let's talk about that for a second. You were a
1: founding member of St. Peter's Cathedral, correct?
0: Right. We um, left the Episcopal Church to form the um, Anglican Church of North America, and St. Peter's is now the cathedral for this area. Mm-hmm. And so that entity is what we help start, and um been been very involved with that program. It's a wonderful thing and um you know i it's been a major part of my life, and I serve at the church too mm-hmm. when you say we, who are you talking about? well, Tina and I, my wife who's mm-hmm. been a you know i I was very blessed to meet her. she's from Pensacola Florida sixth generation Floridian, which is a rare breed mm-hmm. and um she helped me change from being this stodgy Englishman. <laughs> to more like a, you know being an American where you share feelings and you care right. and you emote and so forth. Was that,
1: that an easy transition for it you? It
0: took me a while. She was very rigorous <laughs> at making sure that I made that transition. Right. <laughs> <laughs> she got me very involved with uh, community activities. Mm-hmm. We did a lot of that together. Uh, one of the interesting things we did together is that um, we had been involved with the British Olympic team and, and, and then um, we also did the um, managing a NASCAR team. Right. I started um, Campbell Group International in 1996, really, f- so that I could facilitate my activities in sports and have kept it going for consulting purposes over the years. Obviously, it's become important more at certain times, and then today I have it very active, and that's really my that's my that's the company I work for today. Okay.
1: All right. Well, you brought up sports, and that's where I want to go next okay. because that's a, a big area of interest for me. I read that in 1994, you developed a website for the british olympic
0: team before we get to that website because let me do the premise we yeah uh, tina worked uh was the vice president with the chamber and um we had the sports authority right the goal of the sports authority was to bring major sports events we're talking about tallahassee tallahassee right right. and we'd bring major sports event from economic development because obviously what we did was tourism and if you brought um You know, whenever you had a big sporting event, you have about 2.5 to 3 people that come to town and hotel rooms, et cetera, et cetera. And so we had been doing that. And um, then the 1996 games in Atlanta, the Centennial Games, were looming up. And so our goal was to get at least one team to train for the 96 game. Why was that important? Because the games were being held the last week in July and the first week in August. Heat and humidity is a primary issue for these temperate climate countries, right? And so fortunately, I was asked to be on an economic program um, communications group to go with AT&T to to England at right about that time. And I had the pleasure of meeting up with the British Olympic Association and the British track and field organizations that typically Mm -hmm. don't get on too well because track and field in Europe is a big deal, okay? Yeah. And um, fortunately, we put together a package and we convinced them that um, to consider Tallahassee rather than Georgia. And so they put a bid out uh, for Athens, Georgia, Chapel Hill, uh, Raleigh area, Durham, and Tallahassee. Those were the final three. And they brought in a team and we showed them off. I did all kinds of crazy things. But the key thing that we did, I did a Evaluation of the um, temperature and weather conditions for the last ten years before that, and we could deliver the same conditions as those two weeks, August September, for earlier for nine months out of the year. Wow! <laughs> and so, what our slogan was? Normally,
1: that's not a big selling point. No, for no. People and, but coming the
0: here. thing that's yeah. really important to understand is that in Tallahassee we have the finest heat and humidity in the South. (laughs) And they bought it and they came. And we got 21 of the 24 teams that they took to Atlanta. That's And we built the facilities, put together the facilities. We were blessed to have a fantastic relationship with Florida State University, Florida A&M, all the local communities, the biking communities, the wrestling communities, the boxing communities. And then the other aspect was um, massage therapy, which was a big deal you know, in, in, in Olympic sports. Right. So they came, and they trained here for four years. And we had an incredible number of athletes. For how long? For, for four a, years. They we, they selected us in ninety four Four years? Four years of training. Wow. Off I didn't and remember on, that. Yeah. yeah, off and on. The teams would come, and they as we got closer to the games, they came more and more. Okay. Um, and that formula is very important um, for what we did. We were fortunate to be able to contact Buckingham Palace, and Princess Anne made a decision to come. And the night and the day before the game started in Atlanta, she was flown in on a private jet, and I got to spend the day with her, taking her to all the venues and making meeting the players, the, the, yeah. the athletes. Very exciting time. Very yeah. exciting time. And so, getting back to the website, you so you did you the website, part that, of that, right? Um, the idea was to be able to sell branded material, good clothing, right? Well, for most people they don't realize that the Olympic rings look the same, and they are the same in every single country. But you're not allowed to sell any kind of Olympic gear in America other than American Olympic gear. Hmm. We got a waiver, we had a good relationship with the American Olympic Association. And so when we opened that, They agreed to let us to sell British uh, Olympic-branded materials on that website, and um, that was very significant. All right, so in
1: addition to the Olympic, the work with the Olympics, you also um, were involved in managing marketing and sponsorships for a NASCAR team. So how did you get involved with NASCAR?
0: I had a friend that I went to Chapel Hill with, and he was the lawyer for a team in Asheville, North Carolina. And they had, um, they had a team, but it, it never really got better than 17th position. And in NASCAR, you know, the, the difference between first place and 40, the 44th car is seconds, not a lot of not a time. Right. And he asked me to come up and um, help them with their sponsorship. And so Tina and I uh, took on the opportunity to use our knowledge that we had learned from the Olympics to help them with their sponsorship. Along the way, um, having worked with all these athletes, just little things that we could help them with that would make a huge difference. For instance, whenever you jump, you always jump off the same foot, okay? Well, when you go over the wall to change a tire, you're talking seconds. And if you go off the wall on the wrong foot, the body will change and put you on the right foot. You've now lost a second. Every second is one position back, Mm-hmm. as you go back on the track how do you max minimize the time it takes to train to change tires and get the cars ready we helped them get the sponsorship we we did that when we thought we had got a major uh victory and mm-hmm. tina had spent a lot of time cultivating uh and we really felt that we had convinced um pepsi to sponsor our teams we had team our number was one and they wanted the number one mm-hmm. And the vice president called Tina and said, I got to tell you, we can't go through with the deal. But when you hear what we have, you'll understand. And she hung up very disappointed. And she told me, I said, well, there's only one person that would make that difference. And I said, Jeff Gordon. And he was a Coca-Cola sponsor. And yes, they had convinced him to move from Coca-Cola to Pepsi. Mm -hmm. That was an exciting time. I mean, it's such a a, a tremendous you know you fly into the, the different uh, venues and you're inside that area yeah. working with the teams and it's just a wonderful experience but it's not conducive to raising three kids so that's when <laughs> we left that industry
1: yeah hey everybody just a quick reminder that this episode is brought to you by Fiori Communications just like people every business has a story to tell and we've been helping our clients tell their story since 2001 because who you are as a company is just as important as what you do. To learn more about how telling your story can make a difference in your business, visit fioricommunications.com. Thanks again for listening. Now back to the show. Now we get to one of the most interesting parts for me as a huge sports fan, especially football fan. Um, you were and are still a member of the Tallahassee Quarterback Club, and I believe you founded the foundation too. Um, Tell me about the origins of the Bolitnikoff Award
0: and how all that happened. That's a great question, and I thoroughly enjoy talking about it. But bottom line, um, over the years, um, from my time in high school where we played football, I had a tremendous interest in college football and football in general. And I was watching uh, Charlie Ward get his Heisman. Uh, uh, For those that don't know, Charlie Ward was at Florida State University and won the Heisman, and it suddenly occurred to me as I listened to him getting the award and having listened to the college football award show three days before, having looked at the the sport and understanding that there was no award for the college, for the wide receivers. As I said, there are some um, seven positions in college football, and indeed, as I looked through the history uh, from the very first pass that. Occurred between Dartmouth and Yale in eighteen eighty-seven. The quarterback was falling and threw the ball, and uh, it was caught and went for a touchdown. And then the ref said, "Well, there's no rule against it," and that's how the nobody had thought to throw the ball. Nobody up to had that thought point. the ball, right? And so it wasn't outlawed. Um, then, so I then looked at two things: who would you give the award to? So I did the research on who had the best statistics in college football. And as you go through and look at um, the history up until that date, 1994, um, 93, that time period, it came to be evident that Fred Bolitnikoff, who was from Erie, Pennsylvania, a very successful athlete, had led it in five sports in, in high school, and he played for Florida State University and his statistics uh, were the very best at the time, that's who I eventually um, decided that would be the person that we would name the award after. Mm-hmm. And you also
1: had a great um, pro career
0: with the Raiders. Right. And right? that's what I one Being a marketing person, that was one aspect. That's a great observation on your part, is that I didn't pick up on that. And so after we created the award, I called him and got to know him. I had to talk to the Raiders organization to allow them allow me to talk to him. Mm-hmm. Yes, he had had a very successful pro career. But so then you had to create a trophy. And if you look at each of the seven positions, there's a specific stance that depict, if you look at a quarterback, the way they stand, the quarterback award looks like that. I look at the running back. And the key position for a receiver is a sideline pass. And so we created that award, the, the figurine to look that way. And it was kind of interesting is that we had nobody that did um, figurines in Tallahassee. The only person I could do to get to do it was a world-renowned duck decoy person that did decoys for ducks. Right. And he did the first mold. Obviously, it had some issues, but we had a, a very fortunate that we knew one of the people in town that did trophies. And they were able to get the um, clay model to the company in Chicago, Lewis that does all the Emmys, Oscars, and MTV awards, and so forth, and they do all those things. And so that model was then sent to Chicago, and then we wanted a blank to really stand out, and so we have Philippine Marble, which is the finest marble in the world, and that's the blank that it goes in. The Blitnikoff Award is the heaviest award of all of them. So tell me about the
1: impact that the award, I mean... The first year you actually gave it on air, on ESPN, at the
0: awards ceremony, right, with the other awards? Right. We From the day I saw Charlie Ward get his Heisman, 11 months and eight days later, we had created the award, put in place the um, committee to do the selection.
1: And what about the impact on the Tallahassee Quarterback Club and having that kind of prestige associated
0: with the organization here in town? Well the quarterback club um, we then founded the foundation. it's really the foundation that does the award. It's very significant what has happened. over the years it has been very highly received. What has then been added is scholarships that they give to very individual unique individuals in the high school level right. and they get a, a scholarship is just incredible. so yeah. um, it's really been very very successful. and the key thing to understand about it is you don't create an award by yourself. You have a tremendous team that you build around you. And over the years, many people have been involved, and it's changed the, the life for so many people, not just the, the players, but uh, the folks that have been in part of it.
1: Right. I know another passion in your life is Rotary International, and you've been a member of Rotary, a Rotarian, for many years now. And um, we're both members of the Sunrise Club here in Tallahassee. So tell me why Rotary is important to you and the role of
0: that organization in your life. Rotary, when I joined, I was asked to join in uh, Pensacola, and I joined that club. And part of what I think is key to the American society is that you're giving back. I'd done that with the Boy Scouts, and now in Rotary represented a, a way of giving back to all that you had been blessed with. And being a part of Rotary is that you can serve the community, participate in making life better for other people. Mm -hmm. And so I made a decision that I would, um, if I did one thing well, I would do Rotary well. Attendance is a real critical thing to me. So being a part of first the Rotary Club of Pensacola, then the uh, downtown, and now the Sunrise. The joy of Sunrise is what makes the difference. (laughs) So the number I
1: saw was 33 years of perfect attendance. Is that streak still intact
0: yeah, it's a little longer now. Yes, yeah, yeah it's pretty. It's very important that I, uh, and that's what it's about. And
1: now, for people who don't know, that's a weekly meeting. It's a weekly meeting, right? right. So that's that's,
0: that's a lot of meetings. Yeah, and you can make up. You don't. People think you got to go to your club every time. Right. You can make up with, at other clubs. And what the advantage of that is, uh, you can get to go to other clubs and meet people and build friendships all over the place. Right wanna talk about one more thing
1: and then the last two questions. Um, we've talked about your wife, Tina, some, and you've mentioned your children, but just tell me a little bit about your boys and your daughter. Just tell us a little bit about them.
0: Well, Tina has been a major part of my life, obviously. We've been working on 43 years together. She has made a huge difference in who I am and what I'm about, and she's director of parish life for St. Peter's and mm-hmm. runs that part of it. I have um, my oldest son, Barrett. They all three went to Leon. And he went on to the University of Virginia and has been had a very successful career and is currently um, with Google as um, uh, in the CFO area. My second son, Fleming, went to the University of Florida and then he decided to learn Arabic. And so he went to Pez University and then to Jordan and learnt Arabic, you know, live and in color. Wow. And then the um, he was recruited and got a scholarship for the, for the federal government. And they sent him back to learn again. And then he went into Iraq and was in theater building and, and managing the building of bases during the, the, the war. And he's now left that, obviously, and is now back. And he works for a company called Aristotle, and he manages PACs. And my daughter, yeah, Caroline, went to... Um, Leon and then went on to University of Alabama. Mm-hmm. She was selected as um, a capstone person, which is a select group of students that represent the president. She is in Washington um, and works for a high-end wealth management firm. Okay. And is about to get married in a few months. Oh, well, congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, that'll be
1: fun. All right, two more questions and then we're done. Uh, Christopher, looking back, what is one thing or person that you would say altered the trajectory of your life to this point?
0: One of the major things that changed my trajectory was my constant changing and learning to live in a in a world of change. By the time I graduated from Florida State University with my MBI, I had been to fifteen schools in my life mm. in multiple countries. I've traveled all over the world, been to fifty-five different countries and um, that ability to deal with change deal with different cultures live in a society that is always changing and being able to help people um, understand change in technology and other things has always been a key factor in my life and had a lot of people along the way that uh, were encouraging obviously at different times um, life was good and you had some challenges every time you Move from one place to another. There's always challenging, but sure. just being able to help other people and to watch learning take place, whether it's in a adult or in a youth or in friends, is just helping people move forward. And then the key to give back, and that's why I've participated in so many different civic civic organizations because uh, I feel that I've been blessed. Uh, the Lord's been good to me, so my my impetus is to, to share.
1: Hmm. That's great. All right, final question. The podcast is named How I Got Here, and we've talked about how you got to this point in your life. Where do you think here might be for you in three to five years from now?
0: I continue to look at um, how I can be involved in, in new technology and, and understand the changes in society. I have... All intentions to continue to work. I consult today. Um, I do think that I want to look more at how I can be more interactive on my own terms rather than obviously being a part of a corporation. I run my own company today which gives me the flexibility to move around. In three to five years I see that um, I'm going to find new opportunities, see new technologies, new worlds and um, I think that's very critical uh, for what, what I'm about and uh, being able to uh, move forward and be successful in those new endeavors.
1: So you don't see yourself slowing down anytime soon?
0: No, I have no intention to slow down. I try to exercise and keep fit, and uh, that's just never crossed my mind.
1: <laughs> that was Christopher Campbell, a great role model for using your gifts and resources to make a difference in every way possible. Thanks for listening to the show. You can subscribe at Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a review. It really does make a difference. Thanks to my amazing staff at Fiore Communications who pick up the slack while I'm working on these podcasts and to Troy Bloom for composing our theme music. You can hear more of Troy's creations on Facebook and Instagram at Troy Bloom Music. To connect with the podcast or suggest a future guest, follow us on social media or email us at podcast at fioricommunications.com.